This is no trick, but it is a treat. Today's program is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at P-O-D-G-O dot C-O. And you know that section where it says how did you hear about Podgo? Tell them Telehell sent you, and believe me, it will be worth your while. <laughs> and now, nail down the furniture, boys and girls. This is Telehell. Every once in a while, We get various forms of communication from the outside world letting us know about the show. One such communication came to us from one of our frequent Facebook followers at Telehell Podcast. Drew Zahosky writes in and says, Dear Telehell, I don't know if you take requests, but have you ever seen Mockingbird Lane, NBC's 2012 attempt to try and turn the Munsters into a dramatic series? Pilot aired as a Halloween special in 2012, and NBC had the option to take it to series. It didn't happen. Full pilot is on Vimeo. End quote. Uh, no offense, Drew, but are you sure you want me to review this? I mean... The Munsters is probably one of the great cult classic TV shows of all time. Sure, it may have only lasted a few years when it first ran, but last I checked, it's still got its fair share of fans to this day. The theme song even got sampled as a recent song by Fallout Boy, which we're not going to play because we're trying to save as much money as we can around here. And supposedly, this reimagining has a decent score on IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes. What could possibly be bad about it? The Munster family is moving in. Cover yourselves. What will the neighbors think? The neighbors should be more concerned with what I'm thinking. For an entirely new experience. My grandpa's gonna eat you. Kids. Mockingbird Lane. (sighs) I had to ask. Well, Drew, I hope you're happy. Now I'm going to have to sit through one of the many Hollywood remakes that probably didn't need to be remade in the first place. And all because you were kind enough to send a request for it. In As is the case with many reboots out there, I can't really talk about this one without first letting everybody else out there get up to speed on how we got here in the first place. A television classic created by the same people who brought you My Mother the Car, that's not a joke by the way, Alan Burns and Chris Hayward were behind this, The Munsters ran for two years on CBS back in the mid-1960s, primarily to go head-to-head with another similarly-themed show about a house filled with eerie inhabitants, which also lasted for two years. Still, though, The Munsters marched to their own beat. The tale of a working-class collection of Universal Studio monster interpretations posing as standard sitcom nuclear family members and blending in with the rest of society. The head of the family, Herman Munster, originally played by Fred Gwynn, 
bore an uncanny resemblance to Frankenstein's monster. His vampire-ess wife, Lily, originally played by Yvonne DiCarlo, stands by her man, Herman, in the misadventures that he gets into. Lily's father, the unofficially unnamed grandpa, played by the late Al Lewis, is largely there for comic relief. And of course, the children. Butch Patrick as half-vampire, half-werewolf Eddie, and reason for me to play this Simpsons clip... If your mother was a vampire and your father was a Frankenstein, how come you are a werewolf? Huh, I never thought of that. Of course, Apu's question can also be said about their fully human niece, Marilyn, first played by Beverly Owen and then later on by Pat Priest. I would ask who the Munsters' in-laws were, but they never really had a chance to specify things in the two years of shows, followed by a series of TV movies, and yes, even a previously successful 1980s reboot. Where the Munsters? Where the Munsters? Suffice to say, the Munsters has long gone down in history as a cult classic that toes the line between campy and macabre. And now that we got the history of the show out of the way, it's time for a brief refresher course in... Acquisition! If you missed our eighth episode about the Clerks sitcom pilot, an acquisition is a fancy corporate way of saying, buying something. In the case of the Munsters, their tale of acquisition begins with two independent production companies, K-Row Productions and Review Television. Put them together in the mid-1960s and you have a joint venture company called K-Row View, who, in addition to the Munsters, also produced shows like Leave it to Beaver and 1964's Karen, one who thankfully doesn't want to see the manager, but I digress. In the mid-60s, Cairo View and its assets were then acquired by Universal Studios, thus making them the owner of the rights to all things Munster. Decades later, Universal buys NBC, which is then bought out by Comcast. And now you know the rest of the backstory. Good day. So now, with Comcast seeing itself with a media library that's both extensive, expansive, and expensive... It was only a matter of time until one of America's favorite monoliths decided to go grave-digging through its back catalog in an effort to raise one of their properties from the dead. Hey, it's the Halloween episode. We gotta keep up with the scary lingo, don't we? One such attempt was announced in November 2011, when NBC, which was slowly but surely trying to claw its way back on top after years in fourth or fifth place, announced that a potential reboot of the classic sitcom would be taking place. Of course, this being the 21st century, they simply couldn't do the same show over again. This had to be different. But how? Well, for starters, let me tell you about a quirky creative by the name of Brian Fuller. There once was a pie maker who had a gift, a touch that brought the dead to life. The gift followed these rules. Since the turn of this century, Fuller had become the flag bearer for TV shows that often get filed under the brilliant but canceled label. Shows that receive the highest of critical acclaim and awards, yet fail to find an audience willing to watch beyond a season or two. And with the exception of the TV version of Hannibal and American Gods, most of Fuller's work is the very definition of whimsical, on a grand scale. Even grander still is the fact that he could write stories in many different categories and genres, including horror, drama, sci-fi, fantasy, and comedy. So when NBC announced that he would be one of the driving forces behind the new Munsters reboot, fans of the Fullerverse rejoiced. Also involved in this show is an alleged person by the name of Brian Singer. Let's just say he's directing the show and he's got a place down here with his name on it when the time comes. 
and that's all we're going to say about him. For now. Now all that's left to do is to cast the show. One of the first names cast was an icon in a number of circles. From comedy to campy, the one and only Eddie Izzard would be cast to play... Grandpa? Really? Eddie Izzard is Grandpa Munster? Not that I'm against the casting by any means, but I'm pretty certain there's a stark difference between what Al Lewis did... Well, 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 even so, uh, a little magic now and then never hurts. ...and what Eddie Izzard does in his stand-up routine. The Spanish Inquisition wouldn't have worked with Church of England. Talk, will you talk? But it hurts. Well, loosen it up a bit, will you? But I guess that's why it's a reimagining. They're allowed to play fast and loose with a casting. Moving right along, the Munster's kin will be played by two relative newcomers, Mason Cook as Eddie and Charity Wakefield as Marilyn. As for who would step into Herman and Lily's shoes, the producers of the show had to make sure whoever they cast captured the spirit of the original characters, while at the same time reinvent the characters for a 21st century audience. Whereas Lily was previously played by Yvonne DiCarlo in the 60s and Lee Merriweather in the 80s reboot, the 21st century version would be played by Portia de Rossi. Lindsay believed that George Michael wanted to fix up his father so he could fill the role of his mother. There's nothing wrong with that. Although, I must say I'm a little hurt that you haven't considered me. You're my aunt. (laughs) That doesn't matter. Another iffy choice, not unlike Eddie Izzard as grandpa, but even more awkward is that DeRossi was actually a last-second substitution. Originally, Lily was to be played by actress Mariana Clavino, who you might know from shows like True Blood or Devious Maids. In fact, it was because of Devious Maids that Clavino wound up getting passed over for DeRossi. Long story, but let's just say that contracts were involved, and we here in the underworld know a thing or two about forging contracts. Just ask the lawyers we have occupying the treachery floor. As for Herman, you had Fred Gwynn in the 60s, followed by character actor John Shook in the 80s, both of whom played Herman Munster almost identical to each other, a big, lumbering, and imposing figure who may come off as bumbling at times, but he still had a big heart unlike actual movie monsters. You would think that they would go for somebody similar in stature who had experience even in the most basic forms of physical comedy, like, say, for instance, a Brad Garrett type. And yet, instead... They went with this guy. What is one rumor, true or false, you'd want to spread about yourself? Well, I guess that I'm like a, um, a very like generous lover. I guess true or false. I want that out. Is that a real one? True or false? I mean, I think it's true. Your ears don't deceive you. That is indeed Jerry O'Connell, a guy who I'm sure is good at a number of roles, is going to be playing our Herman Munster. The same guy who convinced Mystique from the good X-Men movies that he's better than John Stamos is going to be our new Herman Munster. Just as a reminder, this is what original and 1980s Herman were capable of pulling off. Now, Marilyn, dear, do not be downhearted. Someday your prince will come. Again. I hope. (laughs) It's a Ronald Reagan movie. Wonderful. He's such a good actor. Yeah, but they cast him as president. Who's going to believe that? And this is what Jerry O'Connell has mostly done in his career. Camels in Australia. These are noble beasts, my friend. Proud, majestic. Get used to it, boys. Camels do that. You know the old expression, comparing apples to oranges? 
Well, in this case, this would be like comparing apples to an industrial lathe. You couldn't possibly ask for something that's more its polar opposite. And again, this is not to knock O'Connell's performances in his other work, but trying to put him in a role like this would be like casting Johnny Knoxville and Sean William Scott as the Dukes of Hazard. Oh, right, that happened. Uh, well then it'd be like casting Cedric the Entertainer as Ralph Cramden in The Honeymooners. Ralph Cramden's not just a bus driver. He's a man of vision. This country was built on half-ass schemes. Shit, I forgot that existed. Okay, it'd be like Robert De Niro in a Rocky and Bullwinkle movie. Are you talking to me? Are you talking to me? And who else are you talking to? Okay, 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 I'll give O'Connell a chance. I'm already giving Eddie Izzard his grandpa a chance. We haven't even looked at the show yet. Cut me a little slack. While the show was announced in 2011, pre-production on the pilot began later in January of 2012, with the pilot being completed later that summer. Unfortunately, due to various production delays, the pilot was completed a little too late to be entered into consideration for NBC's fall 2012 lineup. But considering all the talent that was involved with the show, this would be one of the rare times in the 21st century when a TV pilot would not go to waste. And since this particular show had its fair share of eerie themes, NBC decided that the pilot would air as a special on the weekend leading up to Halloween 2012. And they would do so in the hopes that if the special did well on its own, the show would eventually be picked up as a series. Would the gambit turn out to be a treat for NBC? Or would it be more of a trick played on diehard Munster fans? We'll see how many razor blades are stuck in this apple. After the break. Monsters do have their place. In the zoo. In your nightmares. In the deep. In your favorite horror movies. But not in your living room. On your TV. Don't let pay TV be the monster in your living room. Pay TV and cable TV companies are seeking the right to charge you for the very programs you now get free. If you want to stop pay TV and save free television, sign the petition in the lobby of this theater. Let your lawmakers know how you feel in the fight against pay TV and cable TV. We interrupt this commercial break to bring you some contest winners. That's right, we did a contest, and we kind of kept it on a low-key side this time, but a few weeks ago on Twitter, we had three copies of our season premiere script to give away, autographed by me and The Marvelists. We would like to say hello and congratulations to the following Twitter users. GJ, at Garrett J, Mr. White, at Lap underscore Pan, and Michelle, at Two Shot Girl. Congratulations to all of our winners. And keep an ear out, because we may be doing something by the time the holidays come around. As soon as we can afford something to give away. But I digress. That's kind of what I do around here. In the meantime, here's some more advertising. Telehell is proud to partner up with Dave's Archives. Dave's Archives is the premier spot on YouTube where you can get your vintage TV fix, including old commercials and original shows covering classic TV and other TV-related pop culture. Here's just a small taste of what they have in store for you. Master Clark, I'm bored. Master Clark, I'm bored. 
to check out the rest of it, go to YouTube and type in Dave's Archives, or you can visit them on Facebook. Again, search Dave's Archives. And now, back to my punishment for the week. October 26th, 2012. Barack Obama faces a challenge against Mitt Romney for that year's presidential election. A major hurricane named Sandy was about to rip the east coast of the United States a new one. So, because of that happening, chances are at 8 p.m., 7 p.m. Central, most of the country probably never had a chance to take a nostalgic stroll down Mockingbird Lane. The prologue to this show begins with a lush orchestral version of the famed theme song and a sweeping panoramic landscape. So far, so good. That panorama leads us to a random campsite where a scoutmaster is questioning what happened to their food supply. There's not going to be any breakfast tomorrow because somebody ate all of our breakfast food. Whatever got into the foods was probably a wild animal. Faster than you can say, Werner Herzog documentary, one of the campers is grabbed by a bear. Quickly, in here! Who's driving? Oh my god, bear's driving! How can that be? And now that we got that out of the way, and at the risk of being all think-of-the-children-like, this is a pretty violent way to start off a TV show that's supposed to be a reboot of a family sitcom. Granted, this is an hour-long show, and hour-long shows usually get slotted into the drama category, no matter how lighthearted it tries to be. But for something that's supposed to be associated with the Munsters, they're beginning with one hell of an exclamation point by having a wild animal take out some campers. Then again, this show is rated TV-14, with an extra V for violence. So, that's understandable. That is until you remember that this program aired at 8pm, traditionally considered a time slot for family viewing. And before you call me out on being a prude, let me just be clear that horror-related media should live up to its reputation. Just not at 8pm. 9pm, maybe. 10pm, definitely. 8pm might be a little too risky, unless of course you're on cable, then the rules go out the window. But that's just me. Moving on, as it turns out, the bear that attacked the campers wasn't actually a bear at all, but rather a werewolf. Werewolf? No, werewolf. But not just any werewolf. That's right, the thing responsible for starting things off with a snarl turned out to be young Eddie Munster, who, by the way, is not wearing his traditional werewolf makeup, partly because the CGI sort of did that for him. In fact, as we'll all soon find out, none of the cast will be wearing traditional Munster makeup. All a part of the re-imaging process, I'm sure, but it's still pretty noticeable regardless. This is absolutely fascinating. Act 1 begins with a real estate agent showing Marilyn Munster some potential homes for the family, when suddenly the property on 1313 Mockingbird Lane catches her eye and her realtor's dismay, as well as some Munster's superfans because, for some reason, the show decided to place Mockingbird Lane in the suburbs of San Francisco, as evident by the shot of the Golden Gate Bridge being in the background most of the time. It's a very emotional property for entirely different reasons. The former owner was a notorious serial killer who poisoned hobos. I'll take it. So the 21st century Munsters buy the place and then take a look around. Leading the way is Jerry O'Connell's Hermit, who we first see framed in an imposing silhouette, complete with his trademark bolts in his neck. 
And then he steps out of the shadows, and the old expression of judging a book by its cover is immediately incinerated upon the reveal. Because the powers that be decided to make Herman Munster not a bumbling, kind-hearted Frankenstein creature, but rather a wannabe GQ cover model with a scar on his neck who just happened to be standing in front of a lamp with bolts on its side, and... What the fuck, Hollywood? This whole move was very abrupt. A happy confluence of events that happened to coincide with an unfortunate baby bear attack. A lot of fuss over a baby bear attack. I don't even remember. Be glad you don't remember. It ravaged and tossed your naked body into the shrubs. And that baby bear is still out there. We didn't have to leave town. It wasn't going to follow me home. Not right away, but wait 29 days. What happens in 29 days? It's about how long it takes for a baby bear to regroup. Look, I know this is supposed to be a reimagining. I know liberties can and will be taken with source material. And I know that the 21st century is a far cry from the 1960s. But I gotta ask. How the flying fuck do you screw up Herman Munster? He's one of the most iconic TV characters of all time, known for his imposing stature and kind-hearted doofishness. And this is what you wind up doing to him? Do I even really need to go on? Not even 30 seconds on camera, and O'Connell's interpretation of Herman is an insult to the term polar opposite. Herman Munster wasn't snarky, or arrogant, or looks like a goddamn GQ model with a tracheotomy scar. And if they screw up Herman Munster this badly, this soon, I hate to see how the rest of the family turns out. I'll give credit that the kid playing Eddie is just a kid. But then again, so was Butch Patrick once, and he too was doing the best with what he was given. I didn't get to say goodbye to anybody. Moving away is a form of goodbye. Mm, not really. Did Grandpa try to eat somebody again? Is that why we had to leave? No, not Grandpa. Just then, Eddie shows off more of the set, which, to its credit, is about as lush and luxurious as anything Brian Fuller-related can be. Afterwards, a young Eddie questions his place in the world. Grandpa said I had a condition. He did, did he? He said it like he says when he says Marilyn has a condition. But he said my condition cleared up. Well, I'm sure it's a different condition. But I like being normal, like Marilyn. Don't say that in front of Grandpa. Say you like being like your dad. I promise it will be just as annoying. And you do get that condition from me. Which one of you? This one of me. Your heart feels funny. That's how I know who I am when I'm made of so many different people. Aw, how touching. And barely justifying of the 8pm time slot after the mauling we saw in the opening scene. Aw, how precious. Well, enough of that, because it's time for the nightmare fuel that makes up Grandpa's debut. After delivery men bring two human-sized crates over to the house, one of them breaks open, unleashing a horde of... Rats? Interesting choice, considering Grandpa's supposed to be a vampire and the animals synonymous with them are bats, not rats. Maybe Brian Fuller wound up with a head cold while he was writing this. Oh, so you hear ours as bees? Yes. I understand. We next see Lily's entrance via a plume of smoke and whimsical spiders weaving her address, which I must admit is a pretty cool shot. Unfortunately, all the cool points in the world mean squat once everybody starts to open their mouths, especially after a post-sex scene. No, 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 no. I'm not going to be a prude. It's the 21st century. It's their interpretation. It's... Why are the monsters sexy in this version? 
Look, I hate to keep waving the banners of family entertainment and the fact that people are free to interpret things however they want to, but even under the influence of the most powerful hallucinogenics known to mankind, you don't make the monsters sexy. They were never sexy to begin with. Even if you apply Rule 34 to the story, the monsters are not supposed to be sexy. The original series, tame as it may have been, was still somewhat wholesome entertainment. But we never saw Herman and Lily engage in pillow talk. You were so nervous about holding him after what your sister did to Marilyn. Well, that was postpartum. Mothers who breastfeed are closer to their babies. It's a fact. A suckling baby changes the mother's brain and makes them love harder. You couldn't love Eddie any harder. I could have if I breastfed. He was just so pink and plump. You have to stop thinking of him as fragile and or edible. He's asking questions. So, after a post-coital discussion on how to handle Eddie's, uh, shall we say, violent maturity, Grandpa, who we see dressing as some sort of steampunk train conductor, tries to put everything in perspective. Is there something wrong with me? That is exactly the kind of shame I do not want coming out of your mouth. The only one in this family who should feel shame is Marilyn, which she carries so beautifully. Well, I wouldn't change a hair on your body, no matter where they may grow. Are we having that conversation? I know all about puberty. You see, he knows all about puberty. I just don't want to talk about the changes my body is going through. We will talk about it later. So, after that seemingly normal conversation, the day begins for everybody. Eddie goes to school, Grandpa goes to work, Herman has a heart attack and dies. You know, the usual typical everyday things. Fortunately, Act 2 begins as Grandpa is there to help mend a broken heart. It seems you broke your heart. Shame on you for being so sentimental. It's my heart. It's sentimental by definition. Ruined. Hey, 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 that's my last original part. Put it back in. Take this thing out. This thing is a piece of genius. Put my heart back in and clean it first. Now, I will grant that this is an important scene. We discover that Herman's heart broke because he's a caring individual, even though he's very much a monster in non-monster makeup. It's good to have symbolism. But now it's time to see why Eddie Izzard's portrayal of Grandpa, though strong, doesn't make a lick of sense in the grand scheme of things. You were never a monster until I made you a monster. Eddie was born one. Nothing you ever have done or can do is a parent that will change it. Tell Eddie there is no baby bear. And say goodbye to your heart, because when it goes, and it will go, all the king's horses and all the king's men will never put Humpty together again. He plays the part too seriously. The original Grandpa Munster was anything but serious. In fact, at times, he was most often the comic relief in each episode. Igor, how about you and I having a game of checkers, huh? <laughs> You got a date, too. You're nothing but a rat with wings. But because the powers that be decided to make this show a melodrama, they turn a fun-loving character into a total buzzkill. Where's the fun in that? He says as he's picking apart a show with a questionable fan base. If you don't believe me, listen to this nonsense as Grandpa tries to explain to Marilyn why the family doesn't intend to stick around. You just said we just moved in. Were you planning on staying? I was hoping on staying. Were you planning on me not staying? Yes. I was going to miss you, of course. I was also going to be quite pleased you weren't here. I'm touched that you'd miss me. Marilyn, I adore you. I was the one that talked your mother out of eating you, but you cannot stay. Why not? Aren't you enrolled in higher education somewhere? I transferred my class credits. Campus accommodation. It's a community college. Marilyn, 
You're not hearing me. I'm going to start drinking again. And here's how the real grandpa would have handled that same scene. There he is, my son-in-law, the 150-year-old teenage punk. Okay, okay, maybe not that particular scene, but the point remains. Like I said, apples, industrial lathe. We then visit Eddie at a scout meeting, where the best enforced awkward banter takes place. This is my dad. Ah, Mr. Munster. Oh, I like your necklace. Is that it? What is that? My son-in-law would forget his head if it wasn't sewn on. It's a... it's a... a thing. This is Eddie's grandpa. Grandpa? I have a disease. So, do you like camping, Eddie? Eddie likes to run wild in the wild, if you know what I mean. As Herman and Grandpa try to hem and haw their way out of a conversation, Lily drops by to intervene slash inadvertently add to the plot without ever saying a word. Who is that? That's my mom. I'll just skip a beat. Act 3 begins with a blatant disregard towards a certain movie. See if you can guess which one. We all must know our place in the circle of life. The deer eats the grass, and someday when the deer dies, he'll fertilize the ground so more grass will grow, so more deer can eat. You guessed it. The show had the unmitigated gall to steal from Kimba the White Lion. Hasn't that property suffered enough? I'll give them this. At least that shot was more compelling to watch than all two hours of the live-action Lion King remake. Though, Eddie Izzard naked in a pool of blood was something I never wanted to see in this or any other lifetime. Nope. Naturally, Kid Eddie is confused by what he just witnessed, and Lily tries to put it all in perspective. Your grandpa's just trying to help you understand there's an order to life. So you don't hate the baby bears when they attack. I don't hate that baby bear. It was probably hungry and confused. That's exactly right. That baby bear, so confused it couldn't possibly know what it was doing. And I have to admit, out of all the misfires and casting involved in this show, Portia de Rossi as Lily Munster is probably the least objectionable. I mean, it's not an Emmy-worthy performance by any means, but she still attempts to display the same brand of kind-hearted sympathy and motherly instincts that the original Lily had. Perhaps a little too sympathetic, considering how off-the-mark O'Connell and Izzard portray their characters. Maybe she's trying to play Lily that way to balance everything out. Regardless, that sympathy is immediately blotted out by more O'Connell and Izzard hackery. Why is that man painting the house? What people will do for a cookie. And what did you put in those cookies? I might have cut myself whilst baking. Don't turn the neighbors into your blood slaves. She came all the way out here just to complain about helpful neighbors. Uh, please remind me again. How does Herman Munster usually handle Grandpa in situations like this? I'm going to build us a car that I'm going to take to the drag races next Saturday and that I personally will win back our car from this lead-foot bailer by beating him at his own game. I really got to hand it to you, Grandpa. This is quite an attractive vehicle. Detroit could take a lesson from this design. That's a far cry from this melodramatic tension. Tension that is immediately broken by another hilarious heart attack. Again, clear. Still nothing. <laughs> I don't understand any of this. I couldn't get him to sweep the front porch, and he works himself to death painting the neighbor's house. The strangest thing about grieving is realizing the loved one's death 
really isn't that big of a deal. And while ratings among 18 to 49-year-old masochists tick up a little, the main focus of the plot becomes more clear. Herman's heart keeps failing him, so Grandpa tries to find a replacement in the previous scene. It was revealed through nothing but instinct that both Herman and Eddie's Scoutmaster seem to have the same type of heart. I could explain how Grandpa knows this without use of running blood through a centrifuge, but this show's only 39 minutes without commercials. Act 4 begins by making the Scoutmaster feel comfortable. But before you can say Tibetan Book of the Dead, Grandpa lays it out on the table. I have not been entirely honest with you. Uh-oh. It's Herman. He's sick, sick man. What's wrong with Herman? It is his heart. And he's mortified at the thought of leaving Lily and Eddie without a husband and father, respectively. I'm simply asking you to think of the kindred spirit and open up your chest, your heart. Followed by more awkward banter, until Lily ultimately figures out what's going on in the most hushed of communications. Why is that man in our house? I was going to take his heart and Grandpa wants to drink his blood. We have to tell Eddie what he is. Yes. I mean, you have to tell him. Shouldn't we both tell Eddie? I don't want him to look at me how he's going to look at me when he finds out he's going to... Turn it up! Turn it up! Meanwhile, back at the dinner table, all subtlety is thrown out the window. Edward, stop playing with your food. I will if you will. That is a gross cliche, and it is beneath you. My grandpa's going to eat you. Is that happening tonight? Just as the Scoutmaster is ready to leave, we then get to see the reason why all of the show's budget went into both the casting and the set design, as we take a look at some CGI that would get you castrated if you worked at Pixar. So nice to meet you. Yeah. Run! What? As Grandpa morphs himself into silly putty with wings, teeth, and roid rage, we think we're in for a spectacular climax involving him chasing the Scoutmaster. But as it turns out, the whole thing was as easy as falling downstairs. No, really, that's how things get resolved. The guy falls down the laboratory stairs, and that's it. I could make a joke about how lazy that payoff was, except there wasn't enough effort to put into the scene in the first place. We then get to the point where Herman tells his son the truth about his upbringing. You're a monster. Not a monster. Eddie, look at me. Did I hurt anybody? You didn't do anything worse than turn into a werewolf. I don't want to be a monster. I want to be a vegetarian. You don't have to be like any monster there is. Except Eddie Munster, who doesn't eat meat. I can't be a vegetarian werewolf. You can be a vegetarian when you can help it, and... When you can't, that problem will solve together. And once again, another touching moment that I'm sure would have been handled much differently if it were being done by Fred Gwynn. But because of how moody and brooding O'Connell is, I just don't buy it. For comparison's sake, here's how Gwynn would have handled a similar moral of the story moment. The lesson I want you to learn is it doesn't matter what you look like. You can be tall or short, or fat, or thin, or ugly, or handsome, like your father. <laughs> or you can be black, or yellow, or white. It doesn't matter. What does matter is the size of your heart and the strength of your character. And that's far more effective than playing it all mopey. Fortunately, we have yet another cardiac ex machina to help shatter the peace.
And in perhaps the strangest of creative liberties being taken here, Herman's being brought back to life with the aid of a Muddy Waters song of all things, while Grandpa drinks the Scoutmaster's blood, making him look much younger than before. Et voilà. Good as new? I know I am. Really odd way to get things done, but then again, Reservoir Dog sort of set the pace for surgery to be done with questionable music. Yes, we get to the tag of the show, where we finally see the family assuring Eddie that everything is going to be okay. And you know, I just realized something. Didn't the Munsters have a pet that lived under their staircase? Uh, Spot! Spot! Go fetch! Bring back Daddy! Yeah, that's right. They had a pet dragon named Spot. Granted, Spot was primarily an unseen prop that spat fire from underneath the Munsters' staircase, but a lot of technical advances have taken place since the 60s. Okay. How does Mockingbird Lane introduce us to Spot? Remember what I said about how the casting and set design must have ate through the show's budget and gave us a walking Eddie Izzard silly putty nightmare? Well, thankfully they had enough money left over to give us a somewhat decent, though still choppy-looking dragon. Do I get to keep him? You sure do, kid. For about 13 more seconds. Because that's exactly how much time remains in this program. Mockingbird Lane was meant to act as a lead-in to the TV series Grimm, a show that had a decent following by NBC 2012 audience standards. Alas, the show's blood ran cold with approximately 5.5 million people tuning in to see the show, or a 1.5 Nielsen rating. Even by the standards of the fact that 21st century TV audiences have hundreds of channels to choose from, let alone this show that aired on a Friday night when people had better things to do than to watch TV, the numbers were still anemic, and NBC officially passed on picking up the show to series. When the dust cleared and the ratings came in, NBC's decision not to pick up the show was obvious. But to the network's credit, it was one of those decisions that they didn't make lightly. Upon passing on the series, then-network president Bob Greenblatt stated, quote, We just decided that it didn't hold together well enough to yield a series. It looked beautiful, original, and creative, but it all ultimately just didn't come together. We felt great about the cast, but we tried to make it not just a sitcom. We tried to make it an hour, which ultimately has more dramatic weight than a half hour. It's hard to calibrate how much weirdness versus supernatural versus family story. I just think we didn't get the mix right. End quote. That argument can easily be said about most reboots or other reimaginings. Sometimes it's best to leave things well enough alone. Sure, there are some cases where there's more to the story that can be told, but that's what we have spin-offs for. Sometimes it's best to end things when somebody says, The End. While I'm sure this show didn't really harm the original show's reputation, it still wound up being an anomaly that didn't really need to happen. Of course, if we were to be honest, it wouldn't matter who was in it, how pretty it looked, which time slot or time of the year the show would air. The show's problems were as clear as day. So, where does Mockingbird Lane move in through the district of Telehel? Let's put a zoning ordinance onto the nine circles. Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, fraud, treachery! The easy one, of course, is the fact that this was a pilot to a show that never materialized, even though this aired as a special. It's still a show in limbo no matter what. 
There's also the fact that this was a show that aired during the so-called family hour of TV, and yet it wound up with a TV 14V rating, thanks in no small part to the opening mauling and Eddie Izzard's animalistic binge eating, which makes the violence circle just as obvious. But the bigger offense that this show takes is the fact that far too many liberties were taken with the source material. Not to say that we're against even the loosest of interpretations, but some changes made less sense than others. Like not having any of the modern monsters wear monster makeup, or having Jerry O'Connell be the polar opposite of Fred Gwynn, or have Eddie Izzard tarnish the memory of Al Lewis, even though I'm still kind of on the fence about his performance there. All the liberties that were taken resulted in the fans of the original, both young and old, waving the red flag for heresy and fraud against the source material, thus resulting in the viewers changing the channel with wrath as a result of what they were watching. Also, I'm just now realizing this. Where was their car? The Munsters coach was probably one of the greatest TV vehicles of all time next to Adam West Batmobile, and the show didn't even bother to give that a 21st century upgrade? Maybe if Brian Fuller didn't blow the budget on set design and casting, we would have had some sort of modern equivalent. Like, say, maybe a high-powered sports car and rename it the Monsterati or the Booga Booga Bugatti or something. But no, lavish as the sets were, it resulted in some cheesy special effects that suffered greatly, plus no monster car as a result. Presuming that's why the show got delayed in production. Spending too much money can ruin a project sometimes. Greed enters at the last second. As the old saying goes, less is more. And in this show's case, more wound up resulting in less. The Mockingbird Lane pilot earned six out of nine circles of telehell. In the spirit of Halloween, this felt like the equivalent to watching an adult put on one of those so-called sexy Halloween costumes. You kind of get what it was supposed to be, but it tries too hard to get our attention. Something that should get our attention that's completely irrelevant to this subject is the matter of voting. Yes, I know, I've been jamming this message down your throats during the past week, but as this episode drops, we're currently three days away from Election Day, and we cannot stress enough how important it is for you to vote during this and any other year that you have to vote. So to wrap things up, I'm just going to repeat what I said on our previous episode. So far, millions of you across the country have already voted early, which is great. But if you're going to vote on the day itself, get as many of your friends and family to vote as you can. And if they refuse for some reason, no matter what side they're on, that's no excuse for you not to vote. And if you're still not sure what your status is as a voter, visit vote.org to do a double check. And most importantly, if you are registered to vote and for some reason you're unable to, Vote.org also has a guide to your voting rights and a toll-free number to their election protection hotline that you can call in case that happens. That number once again is 1-866-687-8683, which is the same as dialing 1-866-687-VOTE. Halloween may be a scary time of year, but that's just once a year. Then again, so is voting. Yes, I know, every four years, they say, but they do have elections every year. But if you miss out on voting, and the person that you didn't want elected winds up getting the job... The fact that you didn't vote may haunt you for the rest of your days.
Once again, that's vote.org or call 1-866-687-8683 to check on your registration status. And don't forget to vote like it could be your last Halloween. Next time on Telehell, even though we just did our Halloween episode, there's something even scarier than a bad reboot. Namely, bad CGI on a baby's mouth. Hey, Shaq, I heard you just had a little guy, huh? Yes, but I'm keeping him away from you. You're a bad influence. Come on, come on, what are you talking about? I know about your reputation, Bob. Rumors, my friend, all of it rumors. Until then. If it's not in Telehell... It's not worth a damn. And don't forget to vote, damn it! Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976. And all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. Not unlike certain viruses, Telehell is everywhere now. In addition to Stitcher, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts, we can also be heard on Google Podcasts and the iHeartRadio app. Of course, we can also be heard in a number of other places just by Googling Telehell. And don't forget to like, comment, rate, subscribe, and follow our social feeds. Twitter and Facebook, both at Telehell Podcast.